Now, Esther is, those of you who are familiar with it, is a wonderfully and richly told story of the history of God's rescue of his people from a murderous plot and how that led to the establishment of a new Jewish feast called Purim. Incidentally, Purim was celebrated just this past Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, just the last three days. So imagine my surprise when, coincidentally, it seemed, Esther was the book that we would be studying this week, even though I thought we would be in Colossians. I get it. It might be a stretch. It might be a stretch to say that God providentially guided the course of the last several months of our study through this series just so we would be looking at, at Esther the very weekend of Purim. But then again, is it that much of a stretch? Are, are there such things as consequences when it, or, or, or coincidences when it comes to God and to his people? Is it possible that God had orchestrated and superintended all of the events over the last several years as we've been working through this study from the moment that we started in in Genesis to now several years later and a pandemic in between to the point where we get to Esther, the weekend of Purim 2021. And all of that coincidentally. That's the great point of Esther, that with God and his people, there are no coincidences. When the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem in 586 B.C., destroying, in large part, the city, the land, ex, uh, uh, exiling and, and, and deporting all of the people of Israel to other lands throughout the Babylonian Empire, that wasn't an accident. And when the people returned to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. by declaration from the Persian king Cyrus, that wasn't an accident. And when the tide of the world is against God's people, it's by his allowing. And when the tide reverses, it's no coincidence. It's no accident. It's always by God's allowance. It's always by God's provision. And that's the point in many ways of this book, Esther. God is always at work, even in the smallest details, to bring about his purposes, maybe even especially when people aren't paying attention to it. So I hope you picked up a study guide for Esther as you came in on the stool in the back. If not, there's a a few more there if you need to jump up and grab one real real quick. And there on the front page of the study guide, we have just some of the particulars of uh, the book of Esther that help us just to understand kind of the context and what we're dealing with here. Now, when it comes to the author, there's no stated author of the book of Esther. The assumption is that, and and, uh, good scholarly uh, um, uh, research tells us that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that uh, the prophet Samuel was very likely at least the primary author of first and uh, at least first Samuel, second Samuel, well, Samuel was already dead by then, but but at least a, a large part of first Samuel, that David wrote many of the Psalms and Solomon probably wrote Song of Solomon and maybe Ecclesiastes as well and possibly parts of Proverbs. But when we come to Esther, we don't know who wrote it. Possibly it was written by Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, and her, her guardian, Esther, was an orphan and being cared for by her, her cousin Mordecai. Perhaps he was the one who wrote it. He was there for all of the events. He had uh, attained a high position in the court uh, of, the, uh, of the Persian king, and, uh, and perhaps he was the one who wrote it. But we don't know who wrote Esther. Nevertheless, we have it for us. We don't know exactly when Esther was written, but the events of Esther take place during the the reign of King Ahasuerus, who who we know as Xerxes I, king in Persia, between 486 and 464 BC. That was when he uh, that was when he reigned, and, and the events uh, of this took place. And so the writing of it had to take place after that. You can't write things before they happen, at least not stories the way that these are. Prophecy that's a different story. This isn't that. 
When we think about Esther as a story and what's going on in it, uh, we find that Esther tells the story of the origin of that Jewish holiday Purim. Now, in detail, Esther is a wonderful story of God's providence to protect his people from this murderous plot carried out and planned by, uh, by this uh, Jewish people-hating man named Haman. God does all of this in Esther silently, working through the individual circumstances and decisions of his people. The name God, the person God, does not show up at all explicitly in the course of Esther. He's not named once in this book. Rather, he's working silently through the circumstances of his people, the decisions of his people to bring about his purposes. In many ways, Esther is kind of like the Bible's Cinderella story of a Jewish orphan girl becoming the queen of an empire. But all the more so, it's a story of God's gracious providence and protection. Now today, when Esther is read by Jewish families, it's a a whole ordeal. It is a fun time. Uh, Jewish families will dress up as different characters in the story. It's kind of like they're uh, kind of like Halloween in a sense, uh, but a whole lot uh, more fun and less morbid. So they'll dress up as characters in the story, gather together, and really involve themselves in its reading. Uh, has anybody ever been to uh, a, a melodrama? melodrama performance where you have like uh, those kind of like uh, they have those kind of vaudevillian sort of villains and and heroines and you have the the villain with the top hat and the curly mustache and the cape who's tying the 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 heroine or the the helpless lady to the railroad tracks and there's some uh, hero that comes along and when the villain's on the scene everybody in the audience boos and hisses and throws marshmallows at them and when the hero shows up everybody cheers well the same sort of thing happens in jewish families when the book of esther is read everybody gets really involved in it in part because it's a really great story. Children will be will, will cheer when Esther and Mordecai are mentioned, and they'll they'll boo and they will shake these things called groggers, which are like little rattles, to drown out the name of Haman every time that he is mentioned. It's a great story, not just in what it teaches, but in, especially in how the story is just masterfully told. Uh, many of you know I studied English when I was uh, working on my undergrad, and, and particularly literature of all different sorts. And, and even among all the great kinds of literature that I read in my studies in college, few things are quite as good as Esther. It's just a good story. You do well, we do well to just read it and, and, and enjoy it as a story. So as we read uh, much of Esther tonight, because it's really hard to get a sense for what do we do with the book of Esther? How, does it apply, how do we apply it to our lives? Unless we have a good understanding of the story. So we're going to spend a, a, a good portion of our time here tonight just looking at the story of Esther. And so I encourage you to get in the spirit of Esther a little bit, okay? When Esther or Mordecai pop in on the scene, you may want to cheer for them. When when Haman is mentioned, you may, may want to boo or, or you know, slap your knees or do something you know, to drown out the name of, of Haman. Or, uh, uh, but just get into it a little bit. Enjoy the story. Enjoy some of the tradition that goes along with it. But also, we're going to look to see some lessons that we can learn, especially through the characters that are presented in this story. And when we think about Ezra, or excuse me, Esther, in the scope of redemption history, uh, redemption history being that big story of salvation that God is telling all through his word, uh, Genesis through Revelation. It takes place in four parts, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. 
In the scope of redemption history, Esther kind of falls uh, in that area around fall and redemption. We, we see the stain of sin in the lives of people and, and, and continuing in the lives of the people of Israel as some of them are still in exile in Persia. And yet also there's, there are these, these major overtones of redemption, of salvation coming through the work of a mediator on, on part of God's people. There are many, many pointings, many signposts to Christ along the way. And so I would, I would place uh, Esther kind of, kind of in those, uh, between those two acts of fall and redemption. It's kind of encapsulating both of those, and we'll, we'll see those on display as we work through it. Esther is, like many other of the books of the Old Testament that we looked at, historical narrative. That's the kind, of, the kind of literature that it is. It's trying to tell, it's telling a story of God's people, but, but with a theological bent, a theological purpose. It's a true story, um, but, but told in such a way to teach us things about God and about his people and about how God relates to his people. And so when we're reading biblical historical narrative, whether it's Esther or some other book of the Old Testament... We do well to, under, to try to understand what the author is, is teaching by understanding the plot, by looking at themes that take place that run through it, by looking in depth at the characters of the story, not necessarily as moralistic examples, but, but to see how they deal with each other and what lessons are being told through their lives and how God interacts with them. And so when you study biblical historical narrative on your own, practice asking questions like this. What is this text? What is the story of Esther telling me about God and his character? What is Esther? What is this book of the Bible teaching about the nature of humanity? What do I learn about who human beings are? What's, what's dangerous uh, about sin? What is good about redemption and repentance? Ask questions like, what does this text reveal to me about how God relates to his people? We get a lot of that in Esther in very quiet and sort of understated ways. Now, you have in your, um, in your note guide... Uh, uh, an outline uh, of, uh, of the plot of Esther, kind of broken up into multiple different sections. I'll not go through that. We'll spend time working through the story of Esther. But I've subtitled this sermon, The Great Reversal. Esther is full of every great literary technique that you would want uh, to find in a good story. There's good character development. There's good plot development. There's Excellent use of foreshadowing, which is, you know, mentioning of, uh, of something that will become really important later in the story at an early point in the story. But the greatest thing, the most, uh, I think to me, the most interesting aspect of Esther is this idea of irony or reversal of fortune, so to speak. Now, of course, God doesn't deal in fate. He doesn't deal in fortune. There are no coincidences with him. But there is in Esther this great reversal. And that's kind of where the climax of the story comes. And we'll see it in just a moment. So what I want to do is just kind of immerse ourselves in the story of Esther and enjoy this wonderful work of God in his word. And then spend some time reflecting on how it applies to our lives, how it intersects our lives, as we look at some of the characters and what they show us. So keep your Bibles open and follow along with me. I hope that you will enjoy yourself. Uh, get into the story. Again, cheer for Esther, cheer for Mordecai, boo for Haman, and we'll all have a good time as we encounter this book of God's word. First, we have the setup, the, the, the prologue, if you will, to the, to the action and the conflict in the story. Esther, this book begins with the Persian king Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. We'll just call him the king tonight because Ahasuerus is not the easiest name to just roll off the tongue for a Westerner like myself, so we'll call him the king. 
begins with him holding a six-month feast across his whole kingdom. He reigns from India to Ethiopia, a six-month feast to celebrate his rule and his reign with an insanely lavish seven-day feast that followed the six-month feast there in the capital of Susa. You can read the description of that feast in chapter 1 of Esther, verses 1 through 9. It is insanely lavish. Gold goblets, white linen, uh, white cotton linen curtains, uh, uh, purple and silver rods, marble pillars, couches of gold. It's crazy. The Persians know how to throw a party. And we read in verses 10 through 12 that on the seventh day of that seven-day feast in the capital of Susa, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he likes to drink too, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and and Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And we don't know why Vashti didn't come. Perhaps she thought that the king's drunken request was not deserving of her distinguished appearance. Uh, the text says that Ahasuerus uh, ordered Vashti to come before the king wearing her royal crown. Some commentators have said that maybe he wanted her to show up in her crown and only in her crown. And she said, no way, I'm not doing that. All the same, her refusal of the king's request displeases the king, and so she's deposed. She is, she is removed from her place of honor as queen of Persia, and a search for a new queen ensues. A new queen begins. We read in chapter 1, verse 19, the uh, eunuchs, uh, servants of the king, coming to him, saying, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed. This is an important foreshadowing, that, that edicts made by the king in Persia cannot be repealed. They can't be undone. They can't be stricken from the record. Let an order go out from him, that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Now, the king takes some time to cool off from his anger toward Vashti, and during that time, he's reminded by his attendants of the need to search for a new queen. Apparently, it took him quite a while to cool off, and so the pageant, the search for a new queen, begins. We read in chapter 2, verses 5 through 17, now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. There you go, you're getting it. Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So here's Mordecai, a guy who had been stripped from his homeland, been living in exile in Babylon and then later Persia and and grown up there. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his, there you go, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Did somebody boo Mordecai? Oh, okay, sorry. I told my hearing's going with my memory. Took Mordecai as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Haggai is uh, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the eunuchs that serves there, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. 
And the young women pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. We, we could probably, we could, let's, let's do this. Let's cheer when Esther comes on the scene first or Mordecai comes on. If we cheer all the, all the time, we, we might not ever get through it. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, had advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Sometime, we learn, after Esther's rise to the throne, her cousin Mordecai, who seems to be a sort of civil servant in Persia in the king's court, He's often at the king's gate. He's within the king's gates. He's, he's serving the nation of, or the empire of Persia in some sort. Mordecai one day overhears a plot by two of the king's eunuchs as they plot to assassinate the king. They are obviously uh, disappointed with his leadership. They don't want him to be king anymore, so they plot to assassinate him. Now, that sort of thing is, is normal in the ancient world. We hear about assassination plots all the time. But on this one day, providentially, Mordecai happens to overhear it. And leveraging his relationship to Esther, the new king, Mordecai informs her of the plot. Hey, cousin, now queen, you need to know about this. Esther then goes and tells the king. And after the king hears of it, the eunuchs who plotted against him are taken and executed on the gallows. And Mordecai's loyalty is recorded in the book of deeds done. Now, this uh, image of execution on gallows is another foreshadowing. This is going to be important later. Something important for us to understand about gallows in Persia. These are not platforms with a hangman's noose kind of gallows. The gallows in Persia were big sticks sharpened on the end, like logs sharpened on the top end that people were impaled upon. Yeah. So when we hear about people being hanged on the gallows, these are people who are literally skewered like a kebab in public for all to see. Oftentimes they were hung on the gallows while still alive. And the Persians were particularly good at impaling. And so they they could impale a person and leave them impaled on the stick in such a way that they would go on living for some time while hung there. So these eunuchs who are executed are executed in dramatic fashion to send a message to all the people of Persia and especially of the capital in Susa. You don't plot against the king. It's after this that the conflict of the story of Esther begins to intensify. We read that Esther rose to queen in the seventh year of the king's reign. And shortly after that, a man named Haman the Agagite, who's a descendant of Amalek, who who were a people that were intensely opposed to the people of Israel as they were coming into Canaan, Haman the Agagite was promoted and honored by the king, commanded, and the king commanded that all people pay homage to Haman as a royal figure. Not to bow down and, and worship him as a god, but to, but to bow before him as, a, as an honorific gesture to this one who had been promoted. Haman is sort of like uh, the prime minister, if you will, of Persia. So we read in Esther chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, 
that all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman, out of his hatred for Mordecai, who who simply won't bow his head in, in honor for this man, filled with fury, his rage extends not just to Mordecai, but to everyone that Mordecai represents. Every Jew fills, the thought of the Jews living in Persia fills Haman's heart with hatred and rage, and he begins plotting to kill them all. But we find that Haman bides his time. For five years, Haman stews in disgust over Mordecai to the point that his hatred, as we've seen, extends to all of God's people. And so we find in chapter later in chapter 3 that in the twelfth year of the king's reign, Haman and his buddies begin casting poor. That word poor is the word for lots or, or like dice or bones, if you will, uh, in Persia. Casting lots is that you take, you take some dice, you take some bones, you take some sticks, whatever the case may be, uh, and, and you throw them out in front of you and you try to read them to see if there's any sort of maybe divine oracle or if they, if they communicate anything about fate or the, the God's favor to a person. So they're casting poor, they're casting lots to determine when and how to take out their disdain for the Jews. They're there throwing dice every day to see is today the day when's the day that we will enact this plot against the jews and so we read in chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 and haman said to king ahasuerus there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws so it's not the not to the king's profit to tolerate them Notice that Haman doesn't mention that these people he's speaking about are the Jews. He just mentions a people generically. If it please the king, let it be decreed, Haman says, that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business so that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Now this edict, and we've learned already that edicts that go out from the king can't be reversed in Persia. If the king signs his, his seal to this edict, there's nothing that can turn it back. The Jews are doomed This edict turns Mordecai and all of the Jews, once it's made public, it turns them to mourning. Now, eventually, news gets to Queen Esther of the edict. Now, mind you, she still hasn't told the king that she's a Jew yet. She's still sort of living in secrecy. And as news of this edict comes to her, she is deeply distressed for her people. She begins to go back and forth through through a, a liaison to her cousin Mordecai. And after some back and forth with Mordecai through this messenger, he finally responds to her with these prescient and wise words that inspire and encourage Esther. We read in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that, the king's, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. You're not safe at the king's palace once they find out you're a Jew, Mordecai says. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom 
for such a time as this. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went his way and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The conflict is intensifying. The people of Israel, the Jews, are in danger. And now word has finally made it to the queen, and she is faced with a serious decision to make. She can go before the king and ask for relief, but as things go in Persia, anyone who approaches the king without the king's permission, without the king's favor, is usually taken out and executed like those eunuchs were who were hung on those gallows. Esther knows that if she approaches the king without his favor, that she could end up like those eunuchs who previously plotted against him. And yet she says, if I perish, then I suppose I perish. As we move into chapter 5 of Esther, we see two different plans at work competing against one another. The plan of Haman to destroy the Jews and the plan of Mordecai and Esther to save them. Chapter 5 tells in detail the contrasting plans of of these two individuals. Esther, now emboldened by her cousin and uh, and the prayer and fasting of the people of Israel and her and her young women there in the palace complex, she approaches the king, Ahasuerus, at the risk of her own life. She's not been invited, and her own life is at risk. Now remember, we are told that Esther is beautiful and lovely. And that she has earned the king's favor before. I mean, it was her physical appearance that won his favor in the early chapters of Esther. But at this point, the king hasn't called for her to be in his company in over a month. So at the risk of her own life, she walks into the king's chambers and she wins his favor yet once more. Perhaps by her looks, uh, she wins over the the, the, the king's heart in that moment. Perhaps he had forgotten how much he missed her company. Don't know why, but he extends his favor and allows her to come. And, and the favor that she earns with the king is such that the, the king invites her to ask for anything that she wants, even up to half of his kingdom. Now, I don't know that the king of Persia would actually give her half of his kingdom, but it's kind of an exaggerated way of saying, I'll give you whatever you want. Ask me for whatever you want, Esther. I'm so glad you're here. What do you need? I'll give it to you. Even half my kingdom, although not really, but whatever you want. What she wants, we learn in chapter 5, is simply to invite the king and Haman to a feast. Now, we've already learned that the Persians love feasting. And the king loves himself a good six-month and one-week-long feast, right? So, So a feast of one day, hey, that's fine. I'll show up for that, the king says. So both the king and Haman attend a feast together hosted by Esther. And there at the feast, the king is pleased with Esther again. And so again, he says to Esther, Esther, I love you so much. I'm so pleased with you. You've won so much of my favor. Ask for anything you want and I'll give it to you. Up to half the kingdom. Now he's already extended this invitation to ask for half the kingdom twice. So he's really serious about giving her whatever she wants. And all Esther wants after this first feast and earning the king's favor is one more feast. I just want one more feast. Tomorrow, let's get together and have another party. We read in chapter 5, verses 9 through 14, that after that first feast with, with the king and Haman, that Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. He's whistling on his way home. I'm in the king's good graces. The queen likes me. We all just partied together. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, 
Haman was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Here, here you see a man, just the, the, uh, the depth of rage and anger toward another people that, that burns so hotly that it, it's strange how he does this, but his anger burns so hotly that he's content to push it further down, to concentrate it more until just the right time when he can exact all of his vengeance. Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow I'm invited by her together with the king again. And yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He's got got everything that the empire could offer and his rage over one man's perceived disrespect is enough to take his eye off of all of the the, the, the possessions and wealth that he has. Verse 14 of chapter 5 says, His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Then let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. This is not enough for Haman in his rage to have all of the people of Israel, all of the Jews, systematically murdered. He wants to publicly humiliate, in the most extreme and, and, and ludicrous of fashions, this man Mordecai who has so enraged him. Fifty cubits is about 75 feet. A log sharpened on the end, 75 feet tall, is where Haman wants to impale his nemesis Mordecai. That's what will make him happy. So he has the gallows made. We see these competing plans. Esther working the king. Haman trying to work the king too. And as we approach chapter 6, we get close to the great reversal of Esther. We're approaching the climax. This is where the good stuff really happens. That same night between Esther's feasts, between the first and the second feast, the king couldn't sleep. For whatever reason, he's up late, can't go to sleep. There's no Netflix, so he can't you know, binge watch The Office until he passes out. So instead, he asks to be read for him from the book of memorable deeds. The Persians took great uh, effort to record things that were done in favor of the king or good things that the king had done so that he could be remembered for generations to come. And so as his servants are reading him to sleep, someone reads to him the account of Mordecai's loyalty so many years before. Remember, Mordecai heard that plot between those two eunuchs who were trying to kill the king. And news got to the king, and the king had the eunuchs executed, and his own life was saved. The king discovers that in the passing years between when his life was saved by Mordecai's news and the present day, that Mordecai's loyalty was never rewarded. Now, it's good for kings to reward the loyalty of their people. If kings don't reward the loyalty of their people, it's very likely that people will become in some time disloyal to the king and start plotting and scheming to have him assassinated. So it's good to reward the loyalty of the people. And the king discovers, oh no, I never did anything for Mordecai. This is setting a bad example for the people of Persia. And so he asks that night before he falls asleep, 
He says, what other nobles are in the court? Send them to me. I need some help. I need some advice. And so we pick up in Esther chapter 6, verses 6 through 13. Haman was in the court that night. And so Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And remember, Haman just went home that night and said, I am in the king's good graces. I am living large in Persia, baby. And Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman said to the king, uh, well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And let the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robe, uh, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man who the, whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Give him a game-worn jersey, a game-worn hat, and pull up the king's Camaro. Put that man in it. Throw him a parade, says Haman, thinking of all the things that he would love to do through the capital city of Susa. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Mordecai's in the position that Haman thought himself to be in. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. Just yesterday, just the night before, he went home whistling from the king's house, delighted in all the things that he has. And now, just a few hours later, he's walking home mourning with his head covered because everything in his world has been turned upside down. His nemesis has been promoted over him. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. The people who previously praised Mordecai, uh, uh, Haman, uh, the, the people who previously told him, do whatever you want to this Mordecai who has so spurned you are now saying, if this guy is a part of the people that you've tried to kill, Bubba, you're in trouble. And so as quickly as that, Haman's pride becomes humiliation and Mordecai's humility within the kingdom becomes exaltation and Haman is broken. But friends, it's about to get worse, worse for Haman. We read in chapter 6, verse 14, through the first part of chapter 7. Just listen. While they were yet talking with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Remember, there's still another feast to go to. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. The king loves Esther. And the queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. What I want is to live, me and my people. That's what she says. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. 
If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. They're sitting around the dinner table, y'all. The king says, Who has plotted to kill you and all your people? And she says, That guy? Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into... So he's, he's a, sometimes he's a happy drunk and sometimes he's an angry drunk. This time he's an angry drunk. And he went into the palace garden, uh, maybe to cool off, to think about what do I need to do. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Haman is in no man's land right now. There's no hope for the guy. The only thing that he can hope for is mercy from the one who has just accused him before the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king. Remember what Mordecai did for you. The gallows that were built for him by Haman is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And the wrath of the king abated. This is not the climax of the story of Esther. Like as, as, as good and as crazy and as wild as this twist is, as, as miraculous as this turn of, of events has, has come about, it's still not the best part of the story. The story of Esther reaches its climax not with the death of Haman, although we're glad for God's justice being worked out that way, but the climax of the story of Esther finds itself in the edict allowing for the destruction of the... Uh, uh, it, sorry, the climax doesn't happen yet because the edict allowing for the destruction of the Jews remains in effect. Remember, the king placed a seal on it. We can't repeal an edict from the king. You can't strike it from the record. You can't reverse the thing. It's already been done. The people, the Jews are still in grave danger, even though Haman is dead. And so in chapter 8, Esther bravely approaches the king again and pleads with him to overturn that edict. Now, as we know, Persian law states that no edict can be revoked. The king knows this. He says, I can't just go back and strike that from the record. That's not how we do things in Persia. It's similar to kind of the, the United States constitutional system. Once you amend the Constitution, you can't strike an amendment, an amendment from the Constitution. You have to pass another amendment to repeal the prior amendment or an amendment that amends the amendment. Same thing in Persia. So what the king does is he allows Esther to write a new edict a contravening edict that allows the Jews to defend themselves against their enemies. Now that edict, because we're already approaching the day in which the first edict was to take place that the Jews are going to be destroyed, the king sends all of his fastest horses and FedExes this edict to all the provinces by, by horseback. Meanwhile, while that edict is going out to inform the Jews that they can defend themselves against anybody who would try to kill, destroy, annihilate them, Mordecai is promoted to Haman's old position as prime minister of the empire. But the climax has still not come. The best part of the story is still yet. In chapter 9, we find that when the day of Haman's original plan finally arrived, the Jews took up arms, they defeated their enemies, and they rejoiced. 
And even though they were allowed by the edict that Esther had penned in the name of the king, even though they were allowed to plunder their enemies, to to take the possessions from those people who sought to destroy them, the Jews were told three times in chapter 9, in verse 10, 15, and 16, took none of the plunder because of their joy, because of their salvation in this moment, because they were victorious over their enemies, because the battle that they're fighting is not a battle for stuff. It's a battle for their own lives. They don't take what belongs to other people, what what belongs to those who who oppressed them, who tried to kill them. And out of their joy and, and out of the joy that comes from being saved from certain defeat, the people at Mordecai and Esther's direction established the feast of Purim. Remember, Purim is the plural of the word poor. Remember, poor are lots, the lots that were being cast by Haman and his buddies to determine the day on which to destroy the Jews. This day of celebration, of salvation, of, of, of turning the table on their enemies is known by this name of Purim, or lots, the Feast of Lots, remembering the day when people cast lots to destroy God's people and God, by his silent provision, saved them. Esther closes with the king in his favor, appointing Mordecai to second uh, over all of Persia. Like Joseph was second over all of Egypt, like Daniel had risen in, uh, in status in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, so now Mordecai, this Jew in a foreign land, is promoted to second over all of the empire. The climax of the story comes when the Jews are saved by the edict of Esther that allows them to defend themselves. And that's how the story ends. It's an awesome story. It's a wonderful story. I love this story. Hollywood has done a terrible job of portraying it in film. It's been, it's been done like four, maybe five times over the last several decades, the story of Esther in film. And I perused a few of them uh, this afternoon uh, just on YouTube and stuff, just trying to see, are any of these any good? Friends, they're not. They stink. But this is a great story, and I'm so frustrated that people haven't taken a great story and put it, put it on film in a great way with good actors. But it tells a story of salvation of God's people, and yet through all of it, God is never mentioned. It's kind of like the, the, the glaring, it's like a deafening silence, uh, the absence of God's name. It's like, where, where is God in all of this? What is going on? It's a good story. I'm glad that... The people of God were saved from this murderous, rage-filled individual. But what do we take away from this book that never mentions God's name? Well, there's a few things that we can learn from the characters in the story. Let's look first at Esther. Now, Esther is not as easy a character to look at as you might think. Esther is a brave protagonist. She's courageous. But she's also a Jewish woman who willingly joins the harem of a pagan king who hides her identity from him for many years. It it takes a lot of cajoling, a lot of work to get her to identify with her people by her cousin Mordecai's encouragement. And it's not until she sees her own precarious state as a Jew living under Haman's edict to destroy the Jews that she finally intervenes. As we read Esther, we we probably don't want to look at Esther and, and say to our daughters, be like Esther. On the positive side of things, though, Esther is a bold and a courageous mediator for her people. She identifies with her people in a time of great danger to plead with the king. 
She takes a real risk of bearing the punishment of death as she approaches Ahasuerus on on behalf of her people. And in this way, Esther, in some ways, foreshadows the kind of mediator that Christ will be for his people. Now, Esther's no savior, but she's a mediator that, that has the vague outline of the one who will come to save all of God's people. Jesus himself identified by, be, by taking on flesh in the form of a man to identify with his people, with God's people, not just Jews, but Gentiles too. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 24 and 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Esther's no savior, but her actions point to the kind of Savior that the people are looking for, a Savior who, who, who does not hide his identity, but who identifies perfectly with his people and mediates for them on their behalf, even at the danger of his own life. Then there's Ahasuerus. Let's be honest, Ahasuerus is kind of a doofus. He drinks and parties all the time. He can't make a decision without someone else guiding his hand. He's, he's easily convinced, too easily influenced to endorse evil when it seems profitable for himself by Haman. And he's, let's be honest, rather easily convinced to write another edict contravening the previous edict that he wrote uh, by, by Esther's influence. The guy just blows with whatever direction the wind is going. In many ways, he embodies what Proverbs 14 verse 16 says about fools. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Ahasuerus shows us uh, an image of foolishness and one who runs away from wisdom. Then there's Haman. Haman is horrendously wicked. That's boo. Haman is a hater of God's people. In so many ways, Haman prefigures all of those who hate God's people through all time. He's, he's, he's another type in the, in the line of Pharaoh, in the line of Nebuchadnezzar, in the line of Goliath, in the line of Satan, who would oppose God's people, who hate God's people, in the line of those who oppress God's people around the world today. And yet we should not be surprised by his existence and by the existence of other people like him. We shouldn't be surprised that there are people in this world who hate God's people. Jesus said clearly in Luke chapter 21, verse 17, that the people of God bought by the blood of Christ will always be hated. He says in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, if the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Haman's wicked, but he's not a surprise. Friend, do not be surprised when people hate you for your faithfulness to the name of Jesus, to the person of Jesus, to the gospel of Christ. Don't be surprised. Jesus told you that they would. This has happened to God's people throughout all of history, hated for their faithfulness to the one true God. Then we have Mordecai. Yeah. Though Mordecai is one of the primary protagonists of the story, along Esther, he's not exactly morally pure. 
If we read the story of Esther and we come out at the end of it saying, be like Mordecai, model your life after him, then we fail to see that Mordecai was willing to place his cousin, who was his ward, into a system of royal cyclic prostitution for the sake of political influence. Dads who have daughters, don't be like Mordecai. Sacrificing our morals for the sake of political expediency is never good. That happens in this story. And and it's kind of ugly and kind of like, I don't don't like looking at that. But we need to see it. We need to see that not everybody in the Bible, not even the protagonists of the stories in the Bible are always sinless or always pure, always have perfect and godly motives. But on the other hand, Mordecai does demonstrate a kind of faith and a kind of trust in God that is particularly noteworthy for us. Go back to Esther chapter 4, verse 14. He says to the queen, in light of this decree, in light of this edict that has gone out, he says to the queen, if you keep silent at this time, if you don't say anything to the king, know this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Our salvation doesn't hang on you, Esther, says Mordecai, but you and your father's house will perish. But who knows, Esther, whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai knows and trusts that God will not forsake his people. Even if Esther doesn't do anything, even if Esther doesn't act, even if she doesn't leverage her relationship to the king, Mordecai knows that God will deliver his people some other way. He knows the history of God's people. He knows the deliverance from slavery in Egypt. He knows the deliverance of God's people from the Philistines. He trusts that God will deliver his people even if Esther says, says nothing to the king. But nevertheless, Esther has a position and access that can be used for the good of God's people. And she's responsible to God and to her people to use it. Mordecai has faith in God, but he also says, Esther, it's up to you to do something. Then we have the last and maybe the most important character in this whole story. The character of God himself. Now, God is never named in the story. He doesn't appear, not as a primary character, And yet he's the most important character in all of it. Consider that even though God does not appear in any speech or in any prayer or by any miracle that his fingerprints are all over, the presence of God is there in all of the assumed coincidences of the story. Think about it. Mordecai, a Jew, just happened to be in a position to nominate his cousin as the new queen. Esther just happened to gain the king's favor in an unusual way. And when the king was sleepless one night, he just happened to read about how Mordecai had saved his life so many years prior. Haman, the wicked Agagite, just happened to be the one who had, who had to parade his nemesis Mordecai through the town. And when Haman's plot was revealed and the king left from anger, Haman just happened to come, or the king just happened to come back to find Haman lying on Queen Esther's couch in a compromising position. Haman just happened to be hanged on the very gallows that he planned for Mordecai. An edict went out just in time that allowed the Jews to protect themselves from their enemies. And though they defeated their enemies, they just happened not to be interested in their plunder. Mordecai, who was once despised and lowly, just happened to become the second in command of all Persia by the end of the story. Friends, there are no accidents. There are no coincidences with God. If anything, the story of Esther is a clear embodiment of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
God is moved by his love for his people to act in surprising ways that reverse the expectations and assumptions of people throughout, throughout Scripture and ultimately result in his glory and the good of those who love him, like we see in Esther. In this is a pointing to the greatest reversal of all. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel and the nations, who was unjustly put to a shameful death on a cross, But that shame, even as we saw in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, the shame of the cross would actually be turned to great honor as Christ's death was looked on by God as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, including the sins of those who put him there. In the most evil of their intentions, the Jewish elite and the Roman guards who put Jesus to death were actually fulfilling the loving will of God to save his people. And then the greatest reversal of all comes three days after that. When Christ undoes the power of sin by raising himself from the dead to ascend to the place of highest honor, not as king over an earthly kingdom, but raised to a place of highest honor in a more pure and a more perfect way, even then Mordecai at the end of Esther is promoted to a place of honor. Christ is exalted not at the right hand of any king on this earth or even as, any ki- as a king on this earth, but at the right hand of God the Father to sit as king of kings, as lord of lords, as ruler and reigning one over all the cosmos. In Christ is made full the statement that has marked so many in the course of Scripture. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, the words of Joseph. He says to his brothers who sold him into slavery in Egypt, who left him for dead, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What sinful men meant for evil and putting Christ to death. God meant for good to bring about my salvation and your salvation as we place our faith and trust in him. Dear friends, God does not deal in fortune. He is no God of chance. With him, there are no coincidences. And the most glorious of ironies are all planned for his glory and the good of those who love him. Esther is a story about God's provision even in the silent, quiet, seemingly absence of his presence. He's there working through the decisions, through the circumstances of his people, to bring about his will, to glorify himself, and to pursue the good of those who love him. The greatest reversal of all is on display for us in Christ, who though he was God in flesh, was killed as a criminal. But though he died on the cross in the place of all sinners, the great reversal of death and of sin that takes place in his resurrection. God is in the business of redeeming stories and redeeming storylines and reversing people's positions when they're in peril. God has worked this great reversal in the life and the hearts of all of us who were dead in our trespasses and sins but now been made alive in Christ.